Hey friends, Nina here. You might be hearing some unusual ads before an episode of Already Gone. Apologies, I'm doing my best to weed out political advertisements right now, but sometimes our ad provider is tricked by the advertiser and these ads slip through. So please bear with us as we get through another hectic election season. As always, I do appreciate you listening. And now, on with the show. If you're a longtime listener of Already Gone, you may have noticed that cold cases hold a special place in my heart. There's just something about bringing old, unsolved cases out of the dark and shining a light on a murder or disappearance, one that can still be resolved, if the right person comes forward. Today, we're looking at one of the best-known cold cases in U.S. history, the 1957 disappearance of Maria Rudolph from Sycamore, Illinois. This case didn't just grip the community, it gripped the nation, to the point that FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover was keeping the president up to date on developments in the case. So come with me to a wintry evening in December of 1957, when seven-year-old Maria Rudolph is playing with her friend Kathy, just minutes before she disappears, and Maria will never be seen alive again. It all began on December 3rd. At around 8 p.m., Mrs. Frances Rudolph, along with her 16-year-old daughter Pat, they went to the police station in Sycamore to report that her 7-year-old daughter Maria was missing. Maria had last been seen in the company of a stranger. Fortunately for Frances, the desk sergeant that night was William Hindenburg, a former member of the fire department and the current chief of police. Chief Hindenburg took the information from Frances and sprang into action. Minutes after speaking with her, he placed a call over the radio telling patrol cars to be on the lookout for Maria. He said she was last seen at 7 p.m. and that she was seven years old with short, dark, curly hair and was wearing black corduroy slacks. Maria was carrying a doll wearing a red dress. And that when she disappeared, she had been playing with an eight-year-old friend named Kathy Sigmund. And while the two of them were playing, a white male named Johnny aged 20 to 24, he came up to the girls and offered to give them piggyback rides. While the girls played with Johnny, Kathy went home to get her doll, and when she returned, both Johnny and Maria were gone. Kathy had said that Johnny was wearing a yellow, blue, and green sweater, a gray hat, and that he had blonde hair. It took no more than 15 minutes for vigilante roadblocks to be set up. Maria's neighbors, who were armed, they searched the neighborhood where she was last seen. And by 10.30 p.m., the Illinois State Police, or ISP as we'll be calling them, the ISP were contacted about the disappearance, and they joined the search that night and continued it into the morning. The FBI learned of the case the next day through radio broadcasts. Federal agents from Rockford, Park Ridge, and Chicago descended on the community. Agents would try to gather any physical evidence they could, and they assumed lead of the investigation. In the upcoming weeks and months, the disappearance of Maria Rudolph would capture national and then international attention. 
Once the FBI was in town, they set up shop at a nearby motel and wasted no time questioning Maria's family, her neighbors, and anyone who may have been in or around her neighborhood the day of the disappearance. Newspaper reporters from nearby communities arrived to cover the story. Soon, newspapers from across the country ran stories about the kidnapping of Maria Rudolph. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover, he required daily updates from his agents, and in turn, he provided the updates to President Dwight D. Eisenhower. Using specialized techniques, the FBI were able to get a better idea of what Maria's day looked like on December 3rd before she disappeared. Around 3.30 p.m., she left West Elementary School where she attended the second grade, and she departed with her friend Kathy Sigman, who was a third grader. The two girls first went to Kathy's house, which is directly across the street from the school, and they played there while they waited for Kathy's pants to dry. After her pants were dry, Kathy changed into her after-school clothes, and the girls walked to Maria's house. Along the way, they stopped at Celia Davies' home to pick up empty orange juice cans they would later use for Christmas decorations. Once they arrived at Maria's, the girls cut out paper snowflakes for Christmas decorations for their classroom. They left the house at one point during the afternoon to go to Ferguson's West End Grocery where they bought candy, and then they returned to Maria's house where they played until supper at 5 p.m. Kathy went home to have dinner, but she promised she would call afterwards. She wanted to play with Maria in the newly fallen snow. Once she'd finished eating, Maria walked to Kathy's house, and then the two walked back to Maria's house, where Frances and her 15-year-old daughter Kay watched the two little girls as they left to go to Kay's voice lessons. The girls were later seen by a delivery driver at the corner of the street about 6.15 p.m., and then again by her mother Frances, and they were still at the corner, and the two girls were alone. The best they could figure is that the girls played at the corner for another 15 minutes when they were approached by Johnny. Johnny asked the girls if they wanted piggyback rides. Kathy refused, but Maria accepted. After giving her a piggyback ride, Johnny asked Maria if she had any dolls. She said yes and ran back to her house to get a doll to show him. This left Johnny alone with Kathy. Maria went home to get her doll. She had the perfect doll in mind a brand new doll she had just received. But while she was in the house, she saw her mother, and her mother said, what are you doing? Maria said, oh, I'm bringing my new doll outside to play with Kathy. Her mother told her not to bring the new doll. Get an older doll, because you don't want the new doll to get dirty in the snow. Maria did as she was asked and brought out an older doll. Francis would later guess that this all happened about 6.40 p.m., Once back outside, Maria returned to the corner where Johnny and Kathy were waiting for her. Johnny looked over the doll, complimented it, and then offered Maria another piggyback ride. Maria agreed and rode Johnny's back again. Kathy then complained that her hands were cold and she said she wanted to go home and get her mittens. She asked Maria to go home with her, but Maria said no, she wanted to stay on the corner with Johnny. So Kathy returned to the house to get her mittens, but she didn't say anything to her mother about the man who they'd been playing with. Kathy's mother estimated that Kathy returned home around 6.50 p.m. and left about five minutes later. When Kathy returned to the street corner where they'd been playing, both Johnny and Maria were gone. 
Kathy stood on the street corner and called for Maria. And listeners, I can totally see her doing this, looking around and calling Maria's name, thinking they must be nearby. But Maria, she didn't respond. So Kathy went to Maria's house, thinking that she'd gone home. When she knocked on the door, Maria's 11-year-old brother, Chuck, he answered it, and he said Maria wasn't there. He said maybe Maria was hiding from her. Maybe Kathy should just keep looking. So Kathy went back outside and continued to look for Maria, but she couldn't find her. Again, Kathy went to Maria's house, and this time she told Chuck that Maria was missing. Chuck told his parents that Maria was gone. So Maria's father, Michael, he went outside to look for Maria. He was concerned, but he was not alarmed. He yelled Maria's name, told her it was time to come home, but there was no response. He then blew a police whistle. The whistle was a signal to all the Rudolph children that it was time to come home. But still, Maria did not return. They decided to search Maria's friends' homes. First, they went to Kathy's house, and Mrs. Sigmund said that Kathy was home, but Maria wasn't there. Then they went across the street to another house, not there either. They went back home and called Mrs. Sigmund for an update. It was then that they found out about Johnny. This sent alarm bells ringing in Francis's brain. Now the entire family is searching, and when neighbors learned that Maria was missing, they joined the search. Frances was driving through the neighborhoods, frantically searching for her daughter to no avail. While family and neighbors continued the search, Kay went to the Sigmunds to talk to Kathy to see if she could get more information about Johnny. Remember, Kay is Maria's older sister. Kathy told her that Johnny, quote, talked the way we used to. Kay took that to mean that he spoke like a hillbilly, because Kathy's family was originally from the South. Mrs. Sigmund told Kay that Kathy seemed confused about the entire situation and didn't seem sure of her description of Johnny. It's now 8 p.m. and Francis and Pat went to the police station to file a report that Maria was missing. After Chief Hindenburg put out the call, one of the first officers to the scene of the street corner was Officer Charles Singer. He was met by Kathy's father, Henry Bud Sigmund. The two of them found footprints in the snow one set of an adult and one set of a child. They followed the footprints to a nearby garage where it then looked as if the adult turned to the child, possibly to give a piggyback ride. The two opened the garage but found no trace of Johnny or Maria inside. They also found footprints near a small shed and through the middle of a plowed garden, but those were the last prints they found. While Maria's family and her neighbors were only trying to help, the FBI would later claim that all the searchers contaminated the crime scene, making it difficult for them to later come in and conduct an investigation. Maria's doll would eventually be discovered by searchers near the same garage where the footprints were found. What's strange is that it was overlooked several times by other searchers who had looked in that same area. The doll would have been one of the most important pieces of physical evidence for the FBI because Johnny touched it but by the time they were able to collect the doll for evidence, it had been contaminated, handled by several police officers and by members of the press. Can you imagine in 2020 if a member of the press were allowed access to a piece of evidence at a crime scene? Things were different then. This was just the start of the FBI's investigation, and there were thousands of leads that they would consider. Secretaries had to be bussed in from the Chicago FBI office in order to type reports, answer phones, and record leads. 
and there were some serious leads in the beginning. Two men that were brought in for questioning were Arliss Arch Davis and Irvin Eugene Peanut Shot. Both men left the area in Peanut's Oldsmobile for Florida the day after the kidnapping, and this looked really suspicious. Both of these men also had blonde hair, and when the pair heard they were wanted by the FBI for questioning over the kidnapping of a girl in Sycamore, they turned themselves in to the St. Petersburg police down in Florida. Arch was interviewed first. He told St. Petersburg detective Larry Tallman all about their day on December 3rd in great detail. He said he and Peanut wanted to come to Florida for work, but it all depended on Arch being able to sell his stereo and tape players to finance the trip. Once he sold these items on December 3rd, he and Peanut made a series of stops around town preparing to leave. They heard about this kidnapped girl at around 10.30 that night when they stopped at a friend's house. Peanut was interviewed right afterward but didn't add anything to the story. Both men were fingerprinted and had hair samples taken, but no matches were found. The agents in Sycamore verified their stories and found them to be true. Arch's excellent memory saved them from a lot of trouble, and they were cleared as suspects. Another suspect, one that Chief Hindenburg himself put forward, was Roy Wilbur McDaniels Jr. Roy was a known sex offender. He had been convicted of molesting little girls back in 1951 and spent four years in the Dixon Correctional Center. However, he was mentally impaired, he had no driver's license, and no access to a car, so his ability to make a clean getaway like Johnny did was limited, if non-existent. Still, he was looked into and he provided a solid alibi for December 3rd. He would be cleared on December 5th. A tip from Mrs. Ralph Vivian Wells led investigators to William Bill Crego. Vivian said she saw Bill's truck, an electrical work truck with the word Crego painted on the side, pass slowly by the corner where the girls were playing around 7 p.m. And when the FBI looked into Bill Crego, They saw that he'd been convicted in 1950 for the attempted rape of his 13-year-old babysitter. And I'm assuming this was a babysitter that was watching his kids, not his babysitter. He spent three years and nine months in Stateville prison. Over the course of several interviews, Bill also admitted to molesting six girls in his neighborhood, as well as a girl in Plano, Illinois. They really liked him as a suspect. He just kept looking better and better. Bill tried to give his alibi for the day of the disappearance, but some of the people the investigators interviewed said that Bill wasn't there. And his alibi didn't fully check out, so the FBI decided to search his house, and Bill agreed they could. The search of his house didn't lead to any evidence that Maria had been there. Then they wanted to put Bill in a lineup for little Kathy Sigmund. Though Bill didn't quite match Kathy's description of Johnny because he was shorter, a little older, and his hair was a little darker, Investigators still felt good about him being their man. Now, the lineup was held late at night, past Kathy's bedtime. They had each man say, Kathy, I like you. Would you like to go for a ride in a bus, truck, or a car? But Kathy did not pick Bill out. She didn't pick anyone out as being Johnny. Undeterred, the investigators put Bill's photo in a photo lineup and had Kathy look at pictures to try and pick out Johnny again she was unable to make a positive identification. So they interviewed Bill again. And this time, he'd had a couple of days to think about his whereabouts the night that Maria disappeared. 
and he had the help of his wife. Suddenly, his story is much better, and all of the places he said he went to checked out. They searched his vehicles, and while there was some hair found that looked similar to Maria's, nothing else checked out. And finally, Bill took a polygraph test. He was nervous, but he passed. Ultimately, they dropped Bill as a suspect, but he was never officially cleared. William Despain of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, was the most investigated suspect. He had well over 100 pages of documentation to his name. William worked for the Kelty Radiator Company, and every Tuesday, he would drive a truck route that took him from Cedar Rapids, Iowa, through northern Illinois, and back to Cedar Rapids. He would make stops for diesel fuel along the way and would pick up radiators that needed repair. On October 1, 1957, in Westmont, Illinois, a man approached and struck a 17-year-old girl. He hit her so hard that she ended up with a black eye, a broken tooth, and lacerations to her face. The girl's mother was able to pass along a description of the man's truck to police. And the description of the truck? It led police to William, and his route had him passing through Westmont on that day. Then, on December 3, 1957, an 11-year-old girl was called out by a man sitting in a truck. The man asked to check her legs for acid burns, and she agreed to let him. The man checked her legs, then went back in his truck and continued reading the paper. Two of the girl's classmates saw what happened and reported the incident. Again, descriptions of the truck led police to William. On January 29, 1958, Keith Barry, the shop foreman at Kelty Radiator Company, He went to the FBI and said that William Despain drove a vehicle much like one witnesses said they'd seen near the corner where Maria had disappeared. The FBI became very interested in William when they saw that he had a history of being a pedophile, including being convicted and serving time in Arizona for the kidnapping of a seven-year-old girl. Suddenly, William Despain was a top suspect. On March 1, 1958, Kathy Sigmund viewed William in a lineup. He also took a polygraph test that day, a polygraph that he failed. But Kathy didn't pick him out in the lineup. And why? Because William didn't come close to matching the description of Johnny. William was six feet tall, about 170 pounds. He had dark hair that was graying around the edges. He wore glasses and had a pencil-thin mustache. So despite looking good as the probable kidnapper of Maria, William never reached the threshold of probable cause because he never had the physical evidence or the eyewitness identification to warrant an arrest. Because of his past and because he failed the polygraph test, he was never eliminated as a suspect. Another suspect that the FBI took a real close look at was Johnny Tessier. Johnny was born John Samuel Cherry in Belfast, North Ireland. His father was an American World War II soldier, and his mother, Eileen, was in the Royal Air Force. His father died in the London bombings in the Battle of Britain. Like many other children during this time, Johnny's mother sent him out of the city to save him from the war. Johnny lived with an elderly couple in the countryside. When he was six years old, he finally reunited with his mother. But by this time, she had remarried to Ralph Tessier and had an infant daughter named Catherine. John Cherry was now John Tessier. After the end of the war, Ralph moved back to the United States to set up a home for his new family. He moved to Sycamore, Illinois, and found work at Gamble's, a hardware store. 
Eileen, Johnny, and Catherine followed suit in the spring of 1946. At first, they lived with Ralph's parents while they built their home. In April 1947, they moved into their house at 227 Center Cross Street, which would later be around the corner and down the street from Maria's home. It was a small house that would eventually hold seven children along with two parents. And Johnny did not get along with his new father. His siblings would later say that Johnny was coddled by his mother, likely due to the time that she had to send him away during the war. On one occasion, Ralph beat Johnny so badly that he had to be kept home for several days in order for the bruises to fade. Because of his tumultuous relationship with his stepfather, Johnny was looking to get out of that house, and at age 16, he moved out and rented a room in a boarding house while he took a job at a factory. But eventually, he lost that job and had to move back home. But his plan was to join the Air Force as soon as he turned 18. And that was his alibi for December 3rd, the day that Maria went missing. Johnny was in Rockford getting his physical for the Air Force. But he came onto the FBI's radar December 8th when they were going door-to-door asking questions of the neighbors about the night of Maria's disappearance. Johnny's family knew he would probably end up on the suspect list because of how he looked. He was about the right age, with blonde hair and a slim build. It didn't hurt that his name was Johnny. And Johnny wasn't at home when they knocked on the door of 227 Center Cross. But Ralph was ready with Johnny's alibi just the same. He said that on December 2nd, he was in Chicago getting his physical. And he failed the physical because of a spot on his lung, but he was going to retake the test the next day. On the morning of December 3rd, Johnny failed again because of the spot on his lung. Johnny tried to tell them that the spot was from a bout of tuberculosis he had when he was a kid but the Air Force wanted a doctor's note testifying to that. So they handed him a train ticket from Chicago to Rockford. And at 7 p.m., he was in Rockford calling home asking for a ride. When Johnny returned home that day, on the 8th, he told the agents the same story. He also added that he dropped off some paperwork to the Rockford recruitment office when he got off the train. After dropping off the paperwork, he went to a local diner to have pie and coffee while he waited on Ralph to pick him up. Ralph came and they made it home about 9 p.m. He then visited with his girlfriend for a while until sometime after 10, maybe 10.30. Agents warned Johnny to stay in the area while they verified his alibi. They first checked to see if a collect call was made that night, and they confirmed that the call was made at 6.57 p.m. from John Tessier in Rockford to Ralph Tessier in Sycamore on December 3rd. The agents then contacted Staff Sergeant John Oswald. Staff Sergeant Oswald had already gone about verifying Johnny's story as he was the recruitment officer in Rockford. He told the agents that Colonel Leibovich was the one who directed Johnny to the office, and Technical Sergeant Froome was the one who took his paperwork for safekeeping, while Staff Sergeant Oswald was out of the office. He also went on to say that he spoke with Johnny the following day, December 4th, to go over the paperwork. On the 4th, Johnny mentioned to Staff Sergeant Oswald that he was glad he hadn't been in Sycamore the night before because a little girl had been abducted, and he matched the description of the abductor. Staff Sergeant Oswald also passed some other observations to the agents. He said that Colonel Leibovich remarked that Johnny looked like a neurotic, and that Johnny said he was rejected because he was unstable. Technical Sergeant Froome told Staff Sergeant Oswald that Johnny seemed, well, a little out of it, and that he walked around like a lost sheep. 
Lastly, Staff Sergeant Oswald said that Johnny showed him a little black book and that the book contained the names of addresses of girls in Sycamore along with their bust and hip measurements, which is really weird. On December 10th, Johnny was taken to the Golden Harvest Motel for questioning as well as to take a lie detector test. Johnny's mother was very concerned about this, but Johnny comforted her. He said it would be okay. And Johnny passed the lie detector test, thus taking him off the FBI's list of potential suspects. They felt satisfied he was not Maria's kidnapper. And initially, I thought it was weird that they took him to the Golden Harvest Motel for questioning in a polygraph rather than the police station. But it's unlikely that the police station in Sycamore had enough room for all of the out-of-town agents working Maria's case. And then came April 1958. On April 26th, Maria's body was discovered by a couple who were hunting for morel mushrooms. They found her a couple of miles east of the unincorporated village of Woodbine, Illinois. When Frank Sitar found the bones, at first he thought they were of a fawn or a small deer. But then he noticed a child's clothing and human hair, and he ran back to his wife who was waiting for him in the car, and the couple drove to the nearest farm to place a call to police. Joe Davis County Sheriff Emma Two Guns Grebner and Joe Davis County Coroner James Furlong went to the scene to collect evidence and the body. They transferred Maria's remains to the Joe Davis County Sheriff's Garage in Galena, Illinois. There, Maria's body would lie in a makeshift morgue until it could be transferred 90 miles to Sycamore. There was a disagreement between investigators in Sycamore and Joe Davis County as to where the murder occurred, and therefore who should have to pay for investigative expenses. An autopsy was performed, but it found no obvious cause of death. The condition of her body deemed it necessary that identification would have to be made through Maria's dental records. Even though the dental record identification would make things official, investigators did bring Michael and Francis Rudolph to Galena to make an unofficial identification. Thankfully, they did not have to look at their daughter's remains. They saw a hair clipping and some of the clothing that was recovered. Maria's funeral was held April 30th at St. John's Evangelical Lutheran Church. Reverend Going presided over the services, and he implored everyone to renew their efforts to find Maria's killer. Maria would be buried at Elmwood Cemetery, just a few blocks from where she'd lived. Because Maria was found in the state of Illinois, and there was never a call for ransom, the FBI began turning over the investigation to the Illinois State Police. The transition would not be a smooth one. FBI Director Hoover gave Special Agent in Charge Auerbach the directive that all documentation that was to be handed over to the Illinois State Police could not contain the names of any agents. Director Hoover was especially concerned with Special Agent Thompson, who was a polygraph examiner dispatched from Washington, D.C., Instead of handing over the documentation directly, Special Agent Auerbach was instead to write a summary of each document, including the basic information on each suspect, and to delete each agent's name. That's what the FBI turned over to the Illinois State Police. Because the FBI had more than 2,000 pages of documentation, this was a lengthy process. And the ISP was not happy about this. They just wanted the documentation so they could get to work on their own investigation. A compromise was reached when Assistant State's Attorney Boyle said that the FBI could provide a list of suspects 
and agree to provide more information about the suspect upon Attorney Boyle's request. While the FBI agreed to this arrangement, it was not a popular decision among the Illinois State Police, mostly because the police spent a lot of time doing the exact same work that the FBI had already done because they weren't allowed to see the files. In mid-May 1958, another promising suspect emerged, Johnny Hilburn of Rockford, Illinois. Johnny had been convicted of molesting his own daughter a month after Maria was kidnapped. When he was first interviewed about what he was doing on December 3, 1957, Hilburn said he got off work at the Quaker Oats plant in Rockford and drove about 27 miles south to Rochelle to meet with his cousin. Hilburn claimed he got lost along the way and ended up in Sycamore, where he asked two little girls on a street corner for directions to Rockford. The little girls led him back to the highway. Later, Hilburn walked back that story. He said he was never in Sycamore on December 3rd. So they asked him to take a polygraph, and Hilburn refused and instead requested a lawyer. Days later, after meeting with a lawyer, Hilburn agreed to the polygraph. And to the ISP's surprise, he passed. They also put his photo in a lineup for Kathy, but she didn't pick him out. Like William Crego and William Despain, Johnny Hilburn ended up being a suspect that was tossed out, but not forgotten. As 1958 turned to 1959, the tips began to fade and the leads dwindled until her case became cold. And it would take decades, decades, for anyone to really look at Maria's case again. In 1996, Lieutenant Pat Solar, who had the case as a, quote, backburner case, and he'd had it since 1982, he was contacted by the FBI. They had linked Maria's case with a 1951 case from Pennsylvania. The Pennsylvania case involved the sexual assault and murder of an eight-year-old girl. She'd been killed by a traveling carnival worker named William Henry Redmond. Lieutenant Solar investigated the lead and contacted Malcolm Murphy. Murphy was the Pennsylvania state trooper who arrested Redmond. The more Lieutenant Solar told Officer Murphy about Maria, the more convinced Officer Murphy became that Maria was killed by Redmond. In October of 1997, a cold case report was filed by Lieutenant Solar. It put forth the opinion that Maria was likely killed by William Henry Redmond. Redmond had a long history of crimes against preteen girls, and he was very good at charming them. He would lead them to a secluded spot where he would attack, strangle, and beat them to unconsciousness. Then he would sexually assault them. Redmond also matched the physical description and often used the alias Billy, which Kathy could have mistaken for Johnny. Lieutenant Solar also wanted to note that US-20, where Maria's body was found, that would have been a common route from Sycamore to Grand Island, Nebraska, which is where Redmond was ultimately arrested. There was never a better suspect than Redmond. Unfortunately, he died in Grand Island in 1992. But Lieutenant Solar was ready to relabel Maria's case closed but not solved because of how he felt about Redmond being her kidnapper and killer. Lieutenant Solar took what he had to the Rudolph family. He literally laid everything out on the table for them. Ultimately, the family was not as confident as he was. Nevertheless, Lieutenant Solar put his case files along with about half of the 1957 and 1958 FBI files plus the Illinois State Police files away into the archives, where they would sit, untouched for more than a decade. Fast forward to 1994, 
It's April 27th, and Johnny Tessier, who was at the courthouse marrying his fourth wife, he spotted the King County Recorder's Office and decided he was going to change his name. He had a couple of reasons to do this. One was to give his wife a name that no other woman before her had had, since Johnny had had three previous wives. Two, Johnny, who now went by John, worked with his father-in-law, who was also named John. And to avoid confusion, they started calling Johnny Jack. Johnny thought, why not make it official? And just like that, John Samuel Tessier was now Jack Daniel McCullough. McCullough was his mother's maiden name. John, now Jack, has a new name. And it's more than a decade later, in January of 2008, when his sister, Janet Tessier, calls the Sycamore Police Department to report that her mother, Eileen Tessier, confessed on her deathbed that her son John, now Jack Daniel McCullough, was the one responsible for the murder of Maria Rudolph back in 1957. Janet also told the detective that she'd made the same call in 1994, shortly after her mother died, and she'd given them the same information, but nothing came of it. The detective who took the tip checked with Chief Pat Solar of Genoa to see if he remembered receiving it. He would have referred all tips related to the Maria Rudolph case at the time, but he had no memory of getting this information. Detective Cook, who took the tip from Janet in January of 2008, he didn't do anything with the information either. He either figured it was impossible to prove, thought it was unreliable, or, most likely, he didn't believe her. On December 28, 2008, Janet sent an email to the Illinois State Police with the same information. The ISP in Springfield forwarded the email to ISP Zone 1 Investigations in Elgin, Illinois. ISP Zone 1 Commander Tony Rapaz called Janet a short while later. The commander and Janet had a 45-minute conversation, where Janet detailed her mother's confession. The commander was interested in the case and said he would be, quote, putting his bulldogs on it. On October 2, 2008, Janet got a call from ISP Special Agent Byron Hanley and Public Service Administrator Larry Cott. Special Agent Hanley told her the ISP reopened the case based on her information. They set up a time to meet on October 17, 2008 to go over the information she had about the crime. On October 12, 2008, Special Agent Hanley and Administrator Cott met with Detective Cook of the Sycamore Police to go over the Rudolph case files. They would have had about a thousand pages of the 1957 and 1958 FBI files, plus the ISP investigation from 1958 until the case went cold, plus Lieutenant Solar's files. Remember, Lieutenant Solar is now a police chief in Genoa. Now, they would not have had original FBI reports about the FBI investigation of John Samuel Tessier, a.k.a. Jack Daniel McCullough. On October 17, 2008, Special Agent Hanley, along with two other investigators, interviewed Janet Tessier at ISP Zone 1 Investigations. Though Janet was an infant at the time of the kidnapping, she was able to detail the crime from what she learned from her family. Eileen's words to Janet and her younger sister Mary were, quote, Remember the two little girls? John did it. John was the one who killed that girl. Tell the police that John killed Maria. Janet also offered some other information that piqued the interest of the investigators. She told them that Jean, her older sister, said that John sexually assaulted Antoinette Liston at a very young age. Antoinette was the daughter of Janet and Angelo Barone, 
who were best friends with Ralph and Eileen Tessier. This could play into a motive for the crime. Janet also remembered a family trip to Apple River, which is in the same county where Maria's body was found. Janet said she was under the impression that her parents lied and created an alibi for her brother, something that prosecutors would run with later. She also told them a story about her sister Mary going to visit Jack, that the two of them got into a fight and Jack, while brandishing a gun, told Mary he could kill her and bury her body where no one would find her. With this information, the ISP began building their case. They next interviewed Mary, Janet's younger sister, and the other person to witness Eileen's deathbed confession. Mary told the investigators that she was not yet born when Maria went missing, so they would have to go to Jean, Catherine, who went by Kathy, or her brother Bob for more information about the disappearance. However, she did offer that one day, when Mary and Janet were by their mother's bedside, Eileen seemed desperate to tell them something. Finally, she blurted, I'm sorry, he did it. The ISP's report did not elaborate as to what it was and who he was. Mary also told the ISP a story that took place sometime between November and December of 1993. Eileen was very sick and Jack came to visit. He spoke to her alone for several minutes and then left the room. When Sister Kathy went into Eileen's room, Eileen told her she did not want to see her son ever again. Mary also said that if Eileen were to tell anyone about Jack being responsible for Maria's murder, it would be her longtime best friend Janet Barone. Oh, and there was also a time in her late 20s or early 30s when she and her female siblings each discussed times from their childhood where Jack attempted to or was successful in sexually assaulting them. Mary informed the ISP that after Jack was discharged from the Air Force, he moved to Seattle and became a police officer for the Lacey Police Department and then for the Tacoma Police Department. It would later turn out that although both Janet and Mary would say that Jack worked for the Tacoma Police Department, that was not true. Jack would lose his job at the police force due to housing two juvenile runaways for an extended period. Mary said that was all she knew about Jack's firing, although she was sure there was more to the story. Mary repeated a story that Janet told of Jack sexually assaulting their childhood friend Antoinette Liston. She also said that her brother John, a.k.a. Jack, was a pathological liar. Then she started telling them stories of her interactions with Jack, that once when she was 12 or 13, she went to Seattle to visit him, his wife Sonia, and his daughter Christine. And she said that while she was sitting on the couch watching TV, Jack would sit next to her, put an arm around her, and put his hand on her thigh. He did this in a way that made her so uncomfortable that she got up and left the room. She also talked about another visit that she made, this time when she was 18 and she stayed with Jack for a month. She said that Jack had a photography business, and Mary found it very strange that all of his clients were attractive young women. Then she talked about Jack's family, that he'd been married four times, Sonia, Lori, Denise, and Suzanne. She didn't know the maiden names of any of the women, but she knew that Jack had a daughter, Christine Tessier, who'd been missing since 2005. Jack also had a son, Sean Tessier. Christine and Sean had the same mom, Jack's first wife, Sonia. The interview with Mary only fueled the ISP's interest in Jack. They were so interested that they were willing to go to Minnesota to interview Kathy and drive to Kentucky to interview Jean but there were other interviews to conduct first. 
They spoke to Janet Barone, the woman who Mary said Eileen was most likely to have confided Jack's guilt to. Janet Barone was Antoinette Liston's mother. Her son, Michael, was at one point married to Jean Tessier, and Janet could give a lot of good insight into the Tessier family. Janet said she remembered the day that Maria went missing because her husband was one of the men that went out to look for her. She and her family lived on Center Cross Street, the same street as the Tessiers. When asked if she had spoken to any of the Tessiers recently, she said she'd spoken to Kathy about a month ago. They had talked about the Rudolph kidnapping, but she couldn't remember the context. When asked if she had any theories about the case, Janet said she preferred if the detectives spoke to Kathy about that. But when asked if Eileen ever talked about the kidnapping, she said that everyone talked about it at the time, but that Eileen never brought it up later. She didn't know anything about Jack's current life other than he maybe lived by Portland. And she never mentioned any molestation of her daughter, nor did she link Jack to the disappearance and murder of Maria Rudolph. After speaking to Janet Barone, Antoinette Tony Liston called investigators for an interview. She said that both Jean and Janet Tessier said they were sexually abused by their father and their brother Jack. Jean eventually confronted her father about the abuse, and she added that while Eileen was dying, the girls didn't want Jack to visit. In fact, Jack wasn't welcome at the funeral. Tony also said that Kathy told her she thought Jack was guilty of the crime because the police had been looking for a guy with blonde hair, and Jack had blonde hair. Kathy also admitted being sexually abused by him. When asked if Jack did anything to her, she said it was when she was three or four. Jack came up to her and asked her to pull her pants down, but she refused. Tony said that was the only time something like that happened. Before concluding the interview, Tony gave detective her brother's Mike's phone number. On August 13, 2009, Special Agents Hanley and Damaski traveled to Minnesota to speak with Kathy Tessier Caulfield. She began by talking about their home life when they were younger and how Jack always got into trouble with Ralph, which resulted in frequent beatings. And as he got older, Jack spent less and less time at home. Then she goes into the night Maria went missing and the chaos of the neighborhood she came home to when her father picked her up from her 4-H club meeting. She reiterates that she was home all night and that Jack was not, which is consistent with his alibi up to a certain point, when Ralph would have returned with him late at night. Kathy was adamant that Jack would have been familiar with Joe Davies County because he and his friends had cars and worked on cars. All they did, she said, was drive around and cause trouble. Because Jack was never around, Kathy suggests that neither Kathy nor Maria would have known him. Though Kathy played with both his girls, they never played at the Tessier house because it was so small. This contradicts what Jack said in his December 8, 1957 interview with the FBI when he said, He knew both Kathy Sigmund and the victim well, and as far as he knew, he was well-known by and recognizable by both of them. It would be imperative at this point to show Kathy Sigmund a photo lineup with Jack to see if she recognized him. They're going to speak with more members of Johnny Tessier, now Jack McCullough's family, and investigators really liked him as the killer of young Maria Rudolph. We're going to conclude this episode in just a couple of days. I know we usually release episodes on the 1st and the 15th, but I don't want you to have to wait for the conclusion to this long, strange story. This episode was researched and written by Brittany Martinez, audio production provided by Gray Multimedia. Also, if you haven't had a chance to do so, please take the time to leave a rating or a review on your favorite podcatcher. 
Ratings and reviews help other listeners find the show and the stories shared here. I'm Nina Instead, the voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe.